So that song by the musician NF has lyrics that challenge us. If you want love, you're going to have to go through pain. And if you want love, you're going to have to change. Did anyone tell you that? I've been to many weddings, and I don't remember ever hearing that, that love requires going through pain and change. I was at one wedding of a friend, and it was, you know, a commitment to love in rich or in richer, in health or in better health. Like, that's, that's the mindset we go into these kind of relationships. And we have this false idea that love is just this magical thing that completes us, that makes us whole, that satisfies every longing. But the problem with that is it's not real. See, we, we believe this idea that the goal of love is self-satisfaction, when in reality, God says that the goal of love is to change us to become more like him. See, love must change us, and if you're not willing to flex and change, you cannot grow into the person, the loving person, that God intended. And that's why today we're talking about how inflexibility can kill relationships. I had this glorious summer, as I shared with you, I was on sabbatical, and there were some challenges, and there were some amazing moments, and I have shared in the past, I have some workaholic tendencies, and so it was, took me a while to really start to actually rest. And so after a while, I got really accustomed to it. And I told my wife, I was like, you know what? I think one day I could be retired. And she said, well, why don't you just start working 40 hours a week and let's see how that goes first. Like she wasn't ready to commit to that kind of drastic change. And so as I was getting close to the end and preparing my heart to come back and, and working, I, I happened to run across and reading through the book of Ezekiel, the one of the key verses that God used to actually bring us back to Texas. See, in 2009, we were wrestling through, should we move back to where we grew up or should we stay on the West Coast where we'd been together for 17 years, where we'd raised our kids? And, and in the midst of praying, God, do you want us to move back to Texas? I read this from Ezekiel 2. Son of man, I'm sending you to your countrymen, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. It's like, oh my gosh, God is sending me back to Texas. <laughs> I mean, we're the only state that considers itself its own country, right? How many of you grew up in Texas, all right? How many of you got here as soon as you could? I heard that on the radio. I thought that was clever, right? And there's something really remarkable about Texans, right? We're hospitable, but we're tough, right? We can survive 100-degree days. Give us 50 of them, and we don't even care. We'll still go swimming it. Barton Springs pool, all right? And, and in the midst of this, right, it's either drought or floods and nothing in between. And we have rattlesnakes and scorpions. And, and yet this, this toughness is wrapped in this hospitality. It's coming up on a year since Hurricane Harvey. And, and many of you were there while it was happening, pulling people out of flooded places or going back over the next several months and cleaning things up. We take care of each other. But here's the trick. In spite of all the good things about Texans, we can also be stubborn. And the scriptures uses a phrase I think is very helpful to describe stubborn people. They are stiff-necked. Right, by the way, did you like that countryfied version of Eye of the Tiger for the 
gateway shuffle. Did you notice that? All right, there, there's a stiff-necked aspect to us. It's this idea of our way is the only way, and we're not willing to consider any other options. But the problem with inflexibility is it can kill relationships. This stubbornness, this obstinance can actually do great damage. Robert Roberts writes about a fourth grade class that played the balloon stomp game. Do you remember the balloon stomp game? Tie a balloon to your ankle, you say go, and everybody's trying to step on everybody's balloons. It's chaos. And he writes about this fourth grade class. It was like Darwinian. It was survival of the fittest. It was win-lose. It was violent. It was a crazy game of balloon stomp. And then he observed another class. This was a class of kids with intellectual disabilities. And as they described the game, he got nervous of what might happen. And apparently, as they shared the instructions, it must have been too fast, or they didn't fully understand, because as soon as they said go, they thought the goal was to get their balloon stomped. And so they would go up to their friends and hold the balloon so that their friend could stomp on it. And every time a balloon would pop, they would cheer and laugh. And after several minutes, all their balloons popped, and they all cheered and screamed ecstatic. They had all won. See, some of us in our relationships, we're playing a win-lose game. In order for me to win, you have to lose. But we're invited into a game where everyone can win. And what happens is when we are in a relationship, it could be a parent, it could be a child, it could be a coworker, a boss, it could be our spouse, and we see something in them that starts to irritate us and annoy us, it's like the balloon wrapped around their ankle. And we want to do everything in our power to stomp it out for them. Hold them still and stomp on that balloon to get them to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing. We become fixated on stomping it out, that, that pride, that annoying habit. And we fall into this trap of thinking that we only win when we get our way. But what happens is we might win the argument, but we actually lose the relationship. A demographer named George Barna did a national survey asking Americans, what do you want most out of life? And number one was health. And number two was a marriage that lasts. But how can we get there? I mean, maybe you're here and you're married. Maybe you're here and you're hopeful. Or maybe right now you're here and you'd rather be in jail than married. (laughs) Wherever you may be on that journey. I want you to consider... That God's design for you is to have healthy relationships, whether in marriage or extended family at work with your friends, that we are designed to have healthy relationships, but it's counter-cultural to get there. See, our culture tries to get us to fall in love with, but see, it it happens in marriage that you, you fall in love and it's actually not love at all. You, you end up losing that loving feeling and you start playing balloon stomp, trying to change each other. And then the little things start to get on each other's nerves. The very things that drew you to that person now annoy you. As one man said, very few things get on my wife's nerves. I feel very special to be one of them. <laughs> it's like that moment where all these little things start to add up and suddenly they, they, they just... They breathe too loud. 
And you, you suddenly find yourself yelling, would you just stop breathing so much? Just in and out, in and out. <laughs> and we find ourselves just on edge all the time. See, our culture defines love as a feeling. But there's a big difference between being in love and learning how to love another person. Being in love requires no effort at all. Psychologists tell us that being in love, this obsession of being in love, this romantic feeling is actually like a romantic high that usually lasts only two years. And then after that, we begin blaming each other for the lack of love that we feel, and we start trying to make the other person meet our needs. We become like a, a tick on a dog. Another good Texas analogy for you. And we latch on and we want them to meet our needs. But the problem is we actually end up both becoming ticks. A tick on a tick. And that doesn't go so well. It doesn't work at all. See, but one guy described it this way. You know what? I decided instead of getting married, I'm going to buy a dog. Because after the first two years, a dog is still excited to see you. See, this romantic love, it can... It can hide things from us. That loving feeling, when it dissipates, we think that it's the other person's fault, and so we give up, and we move on to the next person. And so 40% of our marriages end in divorce, but, but then we find the right person, and it's our second marriage. But do you know that the second marriage usually ends 60% of the time? And then we think, well, I, I, the first two they just weren't the right person. And so then we find the third person. And the third person, did you know that 75% of marriages, the third marriage, fail? See, the solution is not finding the perfect person. It's not feeling a love buzz. It's not making life go your way. It's about becoming the kind of person who can sustain a loving and lasting relationship. But see, there's this, this pressure that we get from our culture See, it's, it's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I saw, Deborah and I saw uh, the movie Crazy Rich Asians this weekend, and it has this great battle between the East and the West about honoring your family versus your own personal pursuit of happiness. And the mom from Singapore tells the American girl dating her son, you know, you Americans are obsessed with being happy. And you know, she's right. In fact, the problem with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is when it was written, not everybody had liberty. And even now, in our pursuit of liberty and our pursuit of happiness, we end up derailing someone else's happiness. We end up giving up on relationships and looking for someone else to meet our needs that they could never possibly meet. But here's the thing. If we trust God and we trust his ways, he actually gives us a countercultural experience you see, we're not supposed to pursue happiness. We're supposed to pursue him. And in pursuing God, he actually invites us to die to ourself. Now, what's amazing about that is you actually experience new life. You cannot experience the resurrection unless you first experience the crucifixion. And so when we die to ourselves, that's actually how we find abundant life. And when it comes to honoring family, it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural. The actual best way to become the best person to your spouse or your kids or your extended family or your uncles and 
aunts and nephews and nieces is actually to put God as your priority over your family. And in doing so, you actually become a better person and can love them more appropriately in a godly way. So right now, I want you to just think of the most broken relationship you have right now. Don't worry, we're not gonna stay there for long. But, but it could be a parent. It could be a child, a brother, a sister. It could be your spouse. I, I want you to think of a relationship where that person has been stubborn, where they have made life difficult for you. And, and keeping them there on the side for just a moment, I want, you to, I want you to open your heart and mind to the possibility that there is something that you can do to bring healing in that relationship. Now, you may not be able to change how they act, but you can change how you respond to how they act. You can actually begin to transcend the pettiness, which can actually end the cycle of dysfunction and friction. And as you change with God's help, he or she may actually notice and want your help to change. See, what we're talking about today is becoming a healthy and more loving person. Instead of trying to stomp out the things and another person that you don't like, we actually start working on ourselves and become a more loving, accepting, flexible person. A person that the other in, others in our life are more likely to say, you know what, I realize I got this balloon of selfishness. Would you help me pop it? Because they've seen the humility in us that we're willing to say, I need help with this blind spot. Would you help me overcome it? Think for a moment, what are the areas in your life that you need to grow in? Now, the challenge with blind spots is we don't see them. And so maybe for you today, a next step is just to begin the conversation with God and God, ask him, God, would you show me what are my blind spots? That's a good step, but you know what's even harder? Go to the person you love and say, you know what? I've asked God to help me find my blind spots. Have any insights? You might get an answer even quicker. <laughs> but it takes great humility to become a flexible person. So we're going to do a flexibility pop quiz. All right? So for a moment, think of the family in which you grew up. I'm going to give you five options. Choose one of these fives to describe the family in which you grew up. Was your family rigid? Was it somewhat rigid? Was it flexible? Was your family of origin very flexible? Was it possibly overly flexible? So here's the thing. We grew up in, in an environment, and we're like fish in the water. We don't see the water. This is just what we experience life as being. And some of us may have grown up and decided we don't want to be like that. But in reality, researchers tell us we're pretty much just like how we grew up. Now, part of spiritually growing up is coming out from under our family of origin's influence and instead allowing God to give us new ways of relating to people. Matthew 13, 15 says this. Jesus looked out at those who followed him and the people that were there and said, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, or they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. See, Jesus wants to heal us. He's offering us a new path out. We don't have to stay stuck. Dr. Alan Parducci, a prominent UCLA researcher, 
asked the question, what makes happy couples happy? And what he discovered is it wasn't money, it wasn't success, it wasn't health or beauty or intelligence or power. Instead, what he discovered was a major factor determining happiness has to do with each partner's ability to adjust to things beyond his or her control. See, the problem is oftentimes we think that love is expressed by the other's willingness to do our will. But in reality, they were created with a, as free agents that they are to follow God's leading and God's loving ways. And all of us fly, fight to play God in our own life, but also in the lives of others. And instead, we need to let God be God in our lives and in our relationships. So life becomes full of surprises. John Burke was telling me about this couple. He was trying to help prepare for marriage and and the guy in the relationship had been incredibly hesitant, even though they'd been together for a long time. And so John pressed into, why are you being so hesitant about getting married? And he said, you know, I, I got really burned in a relationship before. I'm determined that when I get married, there will be absolutely no surprises. And so John told him to get a cat. <laughs> then you know you won't be loved, right? <laughs> I added that part. <laughs> Prepare and enrich is this assessment we use. In fact, we're about to start up a whole new uh, Soulmates, which is up at our North Campus. It's a great way to prepare for marriage. But in this assessment, what they did is they tried to figure out what makes marriages happy. And in their study, when asked unhappily married people, 87% of the time, they said, my partner is sometimes too stubborn and inflexible. See, inflexibility kills a relationship. Last week, we looked at how communication can do damage, and so we posted the notes, as always, up at my website if you want to go and read it or listen to John's message. And I want you to know that today, there will be some things that can help you, no matter where you may be on the spiritual journey. But I want us to look at a few ways where change is necessary in marriage. First of all, adapting to differences. When we come to areas where we think or act differently, we need to realize how we deal with each other and how we make decisions. We actually need to value our differences rather than see them as so wrong or annoying. We were each created in the image of God and he made us different on purpose. We come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities and we all express a different part of the beauty of who God created us to be. But see, here's the catch. See, romance and, and physical intimacy can actually mask our differences. And that's why it's so important to build a friendship and even wait on physical intimacy because it keeps us from seeing the real person. So we never go into marriage preemptively considering this person will become irritating, frustrating, gain weight, and lose his hair. But it happens. Sometimes all of the above. See, love is blind in that romance phase. And we're actually marrying an image and not the real person. That's why we're shocked later on. What did you do with the world I married? That's really who that person was all along. We need to value the differences. Also, changing rules is another area. You may have family rules that you grew up with, and they are unspoken rules only to be found out when you cross them. I grew up in a family where to be on time meant being early. If we're leaving at 8.30, you're in the car, that minivan, by 8.25. 
And to be on time means you're late, and to be late means you're very, very sorry. My wife grew up in a family where there were no clocks. <laughs> and I found that so attractive. She was so relaxed, so easygoing. And then two weeks into our marriage, she went off to go shopping. Now, this is before cell phones or beepers or pagers. And so when she said she was going shopping, I was thinking she'd be gone for about 30 minutes. 30 minutes go by, and she's not home. I start to get a little worried. An hour goes by. I start to panic. I think, should I call her parents? You know, maybe one of her sisters knows where she is. An hour goes by. I'm thinking about an APB with the police. But I don't even know what APB means. And I'm, I'm trying to think, is it too soon to call the police? She's only been gone an hour and a half. But, but, but maybe she's on the side of the road. She's been in an accident. Two hours go by, and I'm on the side of my bed, on my knees, crying, God, please bring back my wife. Don't let her die. We're so young. Two and a half hours go by, and she comes in with one grocery bag. And at first, I was enraged that she was still alive. <laughs> and then I was so sorry that I was enraged, and, and I couldn't figure out. Why that bothered me so much? Why I panicked so much? Well, we have different rules, different ways of seeing the world. I heard this great analogy. See, when you, when you get married, it's like bringing two suitcases filled with baggage. We all have baggage. But what you need to do is open up those suitcases and get rid of and together decide what are you going to toss and what are you going to keep. Hold tightly to what God's love says and what he would have for you and get rid of those things that you carried in that shouldn't be there. Some people say that marriage is just God's way of keeping people from fighting with complete strangers. But Jesus explained God's intent for marriage this way, Mark 10. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. There's this beautiful, mysterious, spiritual oneness. It means leaving your family of origin and creating a new family. There's a differentiation following after the ways of God and deciding together what are our family rules. Moving to the place where we surrender to God those unspoken expectations of the other person, which leads to the third, changing roles and expectations. See, as we grow in our relationship, having a, a better understanding of what each person is to take care of. I remember when we were engaged, my aunt who lives up here in Northwest Austin gave me a big long list to discuss with each other. And it was things like chores. It was such an unromantic letter to receive. And Deborah and I started talking about it. And as we went through, who's going to do the, the laundry? Who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to do this? And how many kids do you want? And all these conversations led to fascinating things. Neither of us wanted to cook, we discovered. And neither of us wanted to do the dishes. And so we arm wrestled. No. <laughs> Actually, my wife said, you know, I've always wanted to learn how to cook. And said, I said, that's great. I'll do the dishes. Well, little did I know, the first 15 years of marriage, 10 of those years, we did not own an actual dishwasher. I was the dishwasher. <laughs> and in the midst of that, starting to have conversations and figuring out what are we expecting of each other. See, what happens is when you have these little differences, they don't seem like a big deal, but, but they begin to magnify. They get bigger and bigger. They're like little ripples that become like an earthquake. And when you're 
In an earthquake, the only things that survive are flexible. Those things that are stiff are what collapse. Those things that are inflexible do not survive an earthquake. Now, we lived in Seattle and in California, and we have experienced some earthquakes. But I'll never forget the first earthquake. We were on our honeymoon. It was just a few months after the Northridge earthquake. And we were actually driving to Six Flags Magic Mountain, and we saw one of the overpasses that had collapsed. And we got into the park, and we were riding some of the rides, and we were on one particular roller coaster that was incredibly violent. I mean, it was shaking us back and forth. In fact, she had a, a hair clip that got tossed off the ride. And we just decided after that, let's not ride that one anymore. That was awful. So we go over to buy a, a new hair clip for her, but the store was closed. And we thought that was odd, so we went to go watch a show. We weren't ready to ride any rides quite yet, and the show was canceled. So then we thought, well, maybe we should go ride a ride, and we started walking towards a ride, and, and it was closed. So we asked somebody, what's going on? Why is everything closed? And they looked at us like, you didn't feel it? We just had the biggest aftershock since the Northridge earthquake. We thought we didn't feel a thing. Oh, we were on a roller coaster during an earthquake, which actually in the end may have been the best place to be because it was very flexible and not so rigid. See, when we're inflexible, the little ripples can be destructive. Those little things can turn into big things. And so what should we do? Well, we need to humble ourselves. First Peter says it like this. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. See, when we both come into a relationship to serve the other, humbling ourselves to help the other, we actually become more like who God wants us to be. We experience God's type of love. See, and when it says that God opposes the proud, what that means is he cannot help those who don't think they need help. And maybe your prayers for the people in your life, that broken relationship have been, God, change them. And I want to encourage you to pray, at least in addition to that, God, help me love them the way you love them and help me change. We may not be able to change what they do, but we can change how we respond to what they do. So if you're feeling stuck, feeling stubborn and inflexible, take that feeling, that experience to God. Instead, decide to grow rather than decide to get your way. Proverbs 27, 17 promises, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. These relationships can make us better people, but when iron is sharpening iron, sparks fly. There's another verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5, 21. And you hear that word submit. I know we're in South Austin. You think, oh, that's like a cuss word, right? But I want you to notice this comes before the more familiar Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, be willing to give your life for your wife. It literally says to the husband and the wife, to all of us, we are to submit to one another. Notice the scriptures never say, make sure that person submits to you. That's not in the Bible. But instead, if you want respect, you need to ask yourself, am I living a life worthy of respect? Am I protecting? Am I nurturing? Am I caring for the people around me so that they are willing to trust me and respect me and follow after me? We are to 
humble ourselves. See, the opposite of submitting is having an attitude of dominance, which is inflexible and breaks us. John Fisher, a family therapist, said the success of marriage, the success of a marriage comes not in finding the right person, but in the ability of both partners to adjust to the real person, they inevitably realize they married. Which leads to the final thing, change your attitude. See, we think if I'm going to be happy, then my spouse has to dot, dot, dot. Then my mom needs to dot, dot, dot. Then my brother has to dot, dot, dot. See, what we're doing is we're giving them too much power. See, our spiritual condition and the deepest needs that we have can only be met by God, cannot be met by another person. That they cannot stop us from experiencing joy and peace and kindness and goodness. No matter what they might do, no matter how they might respond, that's something we can experience when we pursue a relationship with God. John 15 says it this way, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Or Galatians 5, but when the Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us, love, joy, peace, and so much more. Maybe you're here and you're struggling in this broken relationship. Let me encourage you, let go. Let go of being negative and critical. Let go of being manipulative and domineering trying to get them to make you happy and shift, shift your heart to let your spiritual well-being bring you that joy he so desperately wants. I said earlier that these insights can help us no matter where we, where we may be on the journey, but I need to be honest. To do this, the only way I know to make it work is with God's help. And so what I want us to do in this moment is just take a moment and ask God to help us Perhaps it's specifically in this relationship with this person. Or maybe there's something God's going to put on your heart of a next step that he wants you to take. So take advantage of this moment of silence and I want you just to ask God to show you your next step or guide you in praying for that person or praying for yourself. Let's, in this moment, pray together. Heavenly Father, your design and desire for us is to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers, to, to be women and men who are healthy spiritually, emotionally. And God, we are in relationships that matter. Extended family at work, spouse. Some of us are feeling stuck and trapped. God, would you show us our path forward? that we would have the courage to ask for help in stomping our balloon instead of chasing after the balloons of others. Give us the courage to take whatever that next step may be. Maybe it's, as Tamara shared earlier, on that Be Transformed card. Maybe it's recovery. We've been stuck for so long and it's a part of the path you want to use to heal us. God, sometimes you heal us instantaneously. Other times it takes trusting you a little by little for a long time. Whatever it may be, may we have the courage to jump into community to do the work necessary to become the people you have created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.